the years after World War II were a prosperous time for both the U.S. and for Mexico. Relations between the countries were relatively strong. And on the art front, Susan Vogel says, there were many exchanges between the countries. Wonderful optimism and hope for the future, having this, having the U.S., Mexico, and the Soviet Union be allies. But these positive vibes wouldn't last long. And within Mexico itself, a new revolution was brewing among younger artists to replace the old revolution. So uh, we call it the rupture because there was actually a document established in the Mexican newspaper called Novedades as uh, the rupture, the, the, the cactus curtain. The essay titled The Cactus Curtain, an open letter on conformity in Mexican art, was written by a 19-year-old Mexican artist named Jose Luis Cuevas. He basically revealed against the idea that art was only about muralism. Uh, he was against the idea because suddenly uh, art in Mexico become uh, a process of painting on the walls and demonstrate the nationalism. And he said, art is more than that. Cuevas believed that Mexican artists should be able to engage in more global issues beyond a preferred government narrative, which had been basically the norm until that time. So at the age of 19, a very young guy who is really rebelling against these greatest artists as Rivera and Orozco and Siqueiros, and he, through a a series of of documents, through this newspaper, started a, a really a revolution against this, this movement of muralism because he thought that the idea of the revolution suddenly was owned by the government. Well, this podcast is Nuevas Voces, episode 16, a podcast by artists in Mexico and Utah. In this episode, we're talking about la ruptura, or the rupture, a word that came to define this moment of breaking away from the government-sponsored public arts projects and marked a shift towards new ways of artistic thinking. All of this occurred during a period of rapid post-World War II growth in Mexico, coined the Mexican Miracle. It involved new forms of architecture, artistic expression, and new ways of thinking for Mexicans broadly. Here's Susan Vogel. So this started happening right after the war. Um, in, as we know, right after the war, the whole the Cold War began. And uh, about the same time, the political artists, the um, the graphic artists mainly, the Teatricarafico Popular, they were having money issues. And they were invited by uh, the presidential candidate, Miguel Aleman, to create publicity for his presidential campaign. So this was a period of time where the revolution made a big change. It The name of the party was changed from the... Uh, Partido Revolucionario Nacional, the National Revolutionary Party, to the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the Institutional Revolutionary Party. So it was a huge change in the sense that revolutionary now became whatever the government was doing. And what the government was doing was mainly industrializing Mexico. Much of this industrialization involved handing over corporate control to Americans. When we relate 
this story of what was happening in Mexico with the U.S. It's, it's around the time when the big Bracero movement was happening. The Bracero movement, something that I didn't know much about before we had this conversation, was a series of diplomatic agreements between the U.S. and Mexico that began on the heels of World War II to provide decent jobs and working conditions to Mexican laborers to help America with its labor shortage. An average of 200,000 Braceros worked in the States each year until the program was ended in 1964. It was a good program for the U.S., but as Fanny says, not so great for Mexico, perhaps. So you can tell already there that the financial and the economical conditions of people the post-revolution wasn't really working. Uh, and many people started to move to the U.S. under this Bracero program. This revolution fatigue in Mexico was one of the many factors that created La Ruptura. So these young artists are thinking, that revolution, that's history. I didn't fight in it. Even my dad didn't fight in it. The president, President Aleman, was, the, I think, the first president who didn't fight in it. And um, he replaced the horses that were always a symbol of the Mexican Revolution with a Cadillac. So the revolutionary fatigue, the young people just thought, you know, this is old stuff. Um, the revolutionary artists were no longer painting or making graphic images of the political things going on. They were making images of nostalgia, the nostalgic things that, like you know, Zapata or building bridges, which was now revolutionary. On top of that, an influx of new artistic ideas from Europe, like abstract impressionism and surrealism, were influencing younger Mexican artists. Many of these fresh ideas fed into the notion of the Mexican miracle. Okay, so the Mexican miracle. Uh, this is a particularly interesting uh, subject for me because my parents were growing up during that time in Mexico City. And when you talk to my mom, she said Mexico was so beautiful in the 50s and the 60s. It, nothing... Anything that you wanted from the world, you could find it in Mexico. And my father was the same way. He was very proud to be, number one, pr a product of the revolution and being able to, uh, having gone to the university and graduated uh, as an attorney, and my mom was part of this revelation of women can go to school too. So uh, Mexico was doing great. Another factor that we should mention that helped Mexico thrive during this period was Mexico's nationalization of its oil. That occurred back in 1938, but it helped the country reap the rewards decades later. The government also encouraged its citizens to invest in technical education and careers. But if life in Mexico's big cities was flourishing, rural farmers and laborers were struggling. people from the farms were basically being abandoned. So uh, agriculture uh, during this Mexican miracle was decreased significantly. And you can imagine that people who lived in the farms were totally abandoned. They didn't have any infrastructure to grow economically because everybody was moving to Mexico City to have an urban job. So although Mexico City was doing great, the rural communities were doing really, really bad. We'll get into this a little later, but it's important to note that much of the Mexican miracle period was about disguising some real problems with social inequity with progressive outward appearances. 
It's so interesting because if you look at the images, it lo does look like the Mexican miracle. The, the image by um, Lola Alvarez Bravo called Architectural Anarchy in Mexico City from 1954 shows a city that's just bursting with new buildings, skyscrapers, bridges, parks, highways. Um, anarchy looks it probably is referring to not a lot of um, planning, but certainly a lot of construction and it, it looks very exciting, this image, I think, and a very um, there's a lot of movement here. One famous Mexican artist and architect was Juan O'Gorman. He painted a notable image of Mexico City in 1949. So this is the just post-war, the beginning of this big boom in construction, showing a worker, showing uh, someone holding a plan that shows this city being built. And it looks a lot different from images that we've seen in the past of, of the Valley of Mexico. Now we've seen so many images of the Valley of Mexico from the time of the Aztecs and then Velazquez. And now it looks like any huge city in the world. And that's what Mexico really wanted, because it did want a world-class city. Another example of some adventurous architecture of this time is the Central Library of La UNAM, the National Autonomous University of Mexico. The building's facade, which was designed by Juan O'Gorman and completed in 1952, presents with colored stones an appreciation to ancient pre-Columbian gods and goddesses, even as the building embodies the modernization of knowledge and science. Yeah, and uh, it's also a very strong statement, artistically speaking. This new voice is Jorge Rodriguez. He works for Artists de Mexico in Utah and also hosts a Spanish-language show on KPCW in Park City called Cara Domingo. It, the architecture itself uh, really kind of gives a nod back to ancient sculptures, ancient uh, artwork, but it has that modernization feel to it. So it's a good way to also say we're proud of our heritage, but we are very, very modern. One other thing I really like about it is in a lot of Mexican art, there the big road leads to the church. The road leads right to the cathedral. And this one does too. The pathway we're seeing in front of the library, it leads to the library. And if you follow it upwards, there's the cathedral. And then it keeps going up and there's like a hall of justice. Looks like the, our U.S. Supreme Court. And then you keep following up and up and up and where Diego Rivera, where, where a Catholic mural would put God, and where Diego Rivera would put revolutionary man, here we have a book. We have learning. <laughs> Another notable work of public art from this time is the Torres de la Ciudad Satellite, or the Towers of Satellite City, from 1957, by Matthias Gortis. Torres de Satellite, and these are the, the towers that are really, you see everywhere. This is a real symbol of Mexico City. It's a work of giant public sculpture. They look like five towers, where that would be offices or apartment buildings or condos, which they didn't have back then, but uh, it's, it's monumental sculpture. And, it's, and again, it, it reminds me of the pyramids, or it reminds me of the Olmecs. Fanny says yet another noteworthy building project to mention is the Plaza de Tlatelolco. Okay, so this is where I grew up. Uh, Tlatelolco, this urban uh, neighborhood, 
it was the first urban uh, neighborhood uh, experiment that was built in all Latin America in 1960. It was created by one of the famous architects called Mario Pani, which also served uh, helping uh, developing those towers and the university as well. He was a very urban, the urban concept of his uh, architecture was very relevant of the time. Mario Pani built pretty much a uh, design at Latelolco. There is probably about uh, 200 buildings with many different uh, sizes and uh, it's an apartment complexes. And the city is basically a city within a city. So I grew up having our own hospital, our own libraries, our own schools, our own stores. We didn't have to go anywhere. Everything was right there. And this uh, plaza is particularly interesting because this, this, uh, this apartment complex was built on one of the ancient uh, Aztec ruins. This is from a classic 1951 Mexican film called Gavilan Poyero, or The Chicken Hawk, starring actor Pedro Infante. Another phenomenon that was helping young Mexicans to showcase new art forms was television and radio. Here's Jorge again. There was definitely a lot of serials, like radio shows. In the U.S., there were serial shows. You know, we had things like uh, The War of the Worlds. You had, you know, the TV shows like The Honeymooners portraying the ideal, you know, lifestyle. And in Mexico, you had the same thing. You had the, the you know, radio novelas. Uh, but it was also, and this is particularly interesting to me, is the dawn of the, of the superheroes. Right, where rather than um, idolizing or, or, you know, just relying on uh, the religion, there was a whole new aspect where you had uh, personalities, personalities like Kaliman or, um, you know, you had uh, all these other, like, folk heroes, if you will, you know, El portraying. Santo. El, El Santo, Santo right, like the wrestlers, mm-hmm. right? And they became the new, the new iconography and they became a new way for the people to, to identify but it was also part of this this new narrative. Oh well, this is the industrialized world. Of course, Kaliman was a way to like talk about the exotic, and the exotic, of course, being you know the Middle East instead of you know Mexico. During the 1950s, Mexico experienced a golden age of cinema. Cantinflas. This is an interesting thing. Yeah. This is a Mexican actor who was making, it was like Cervantes, like the Don Quixote in the cinema industry because he Charles make, Chaplin in the US. Right, because he made fun of every single political injustice through uh, comedic comedy. And his movements and his language was saying a lot without saying nothing. And the Spanish Language Academy actually recognized his name now as a verb is now is not uh, an adjective the, or a noun, the cantinflas, but it's it's a uh, cantinflar. 
if you look in the dictionary, you find that cantinflar is actually a verb, which means saying a lot without, without really saying anything. Asesinos montoneros creen que me van a pantallar. Esta no es la forma de agarrar un hombre honrado. Pero no le hace. No le hace si nomás me lo estoy clachando. ¡Ay! Postejo, esto ciego, le va a tumbar una oreja. Sí, cómo no, si en la calle me dejaron, en la politita calle se llevaron. ¡Ay, me jaló! Me gusta que se está moviendo, hombre. Agáchela. It was such an artistic time uh, uh, to, to live in the 50s, the 40s, 50s, 60s. Art was just exploding in the television. And I grew up watching those black and white movies. And I was fascinated every time I saw those. The yeah. first movie I remember seeing was Around the World in 80 Days with Cantin Flas. Yes, Cantinflas. I mean, you Google Cantinflas and it's Yeah, huge. And, I mean, and there was also, I mean, if Cantinflas had, had the, uh, the popular movement, the populist sort of crowd, you know, it was the common folk, uh, but then you had the more kind of sort of serious, you know, side of things where the upper class people were. You had Jorge Negrete, which was a musician, you know, he was a singer, but he was also an actor. Uh, and then he had the other person, Pedro which was Infante. Pedro Infante, which was like the other popular you know character so you know jorge negrete was considered the upper class you know representation whereas um uh, pedro infante was like the commoner yet even as mexico was experiencing unprecedented economic growth and its arts and culture was thriving in this period forces were also shifting against the older institutions. And the, the La Ruptura is just a product of all of those changes. So at that point, the younger generation is saying, hey, we've got all this exciting stuff going on, we've got an art market, we can sell our work. Abstract expressionism is showing the, the inner emotions of an artist. We don't need this collect, these collective groups that are creating more cactuses and, and rifles and railroads and tributes to Zapata and Villa. So this young generation, um, led by José Luis Cuevas, really just hammered on the social realism artists, the social realists, and disparaged them and told them, you guys are old and out of touch set step aside and let us come forward with new technology with different ways of seeing things and with really an eye to the future instead of continually rehashing the past and all those iconic images of the revolution and this was absolutely devastating to the social realists it was not just the social realists who the younger generation was beginning to challenge young people were also increasingly challenging their government and the status quo. The world thought that Mexico was the example for Latin America. Look, Mexico is doing fantastic. This is called the Mexican miracle. But uh, the reality of things is that in the 50s, so many social movements were happening. And my family particularly participated in, in, in all of these movements. My father has been uh, part of the railroad uh, program and the union. Uh, in 1952, there was a famous uh, movement that uh, occurred in Mexico City where the railroad wanted to be unionized and the government just went after them and didn't allow them to do that to, to really create the collapse of the railroad system that lasted 
you know, less than 100 years in Mexico. And then the doctors, uh, during the, movement, the presidency of uh, Miguel Alemán, also the social security health system was implemented. But 10 years later, uh, the health conditions and the, and the working conditions for the doctors were very minimal. There were thousands of students graduating from the university with no jobs or very poor uh, working conditions. So there was this big movement in, in 1962 where 30,000 medical stu students were gathering in a main plaza in Mexico City. It was the, called the movement of Las Batas Blancas. And my aunt, who graduated as one of the first female doctors in the 1960s, attended this meeting. By the 1960s, young Mexicans were growing impatient and frustrated with problems that they felt were not being addressed by the dominant political party of the revolution. This was not without some irony, given how the original Mexican revolution was ignited half a century earlier. Remember that before the revolution, uh, we talked about how the mining companies were owned by the U.S.? Well, by, by 1970, 80% of the corporations were owned by the government in Mexico. Also, many rural agrarian Mexicans, like Jorge's family, were not experiencing the prosperity of the Mexican miracle. And, I mean, my experience is a lot of my family and a lot of my family's ancestry, they were farmers. They were uh, people who grew up very humble beginnings. They didn't have a chance to go into university. It was something that most of my family members could never even consider to go to school because of the remoteness of, of the universities and the schools, the big, bigger cities. And so the reality was very, very different from them. Uh, you know, even myself growing up, I had the chance to visit family members who lived in a village, literally with 50, 60, maybe 100 people in there. And there was nothing. There was maybe a telephone in the town. Um, and they literally survived off of the, uh, the, the farming that they did. They have to live off their cattle. They have to live off their their livestock and their uh, their crops. Look, you can see that the miracle, the Mexican miracle, was so segregated, mm -hmm. terribly segregated. Urban, urban, rural divide. Exactly. Well. So it's kind of interesting when you think of what what's going on in the late '50s. So Mexico has ex has just you know grown tremendously. It's got an international stature. At the same time, the Cold War has come in and it's sort of muzzled the artists. This abstract movement has, has come in, and things are looking pretty good. And there's not a whole lot of dissent that we see from the outside. The art is, is really abstract, and it may be lovely, maybe confusing, but it doesn't make people want to throw things. Um, things are looking pretty good, and Mexico gets the prize, and that's the Olympics. Well, we will continue our conversation about what happened just before Mexico City hosted the 1968 Olympics in our next episode. You can see images that we discussed in this episode on the website and home for this podcast, artismexut.org. Please share your own thoughts with us. Did you or your family grow up during the Mexican miracle? What impressions do you have of the art or architecture from that time? Do you have a favorite artist or performer who emerged during this Mexican miracle period? Let us know. You can share your impressions with us in the comments section on our website. 
Thanks to Fanny Blauer, Susan Vogel, and Jorge Rodriguez for their insight and commentary throughout this podcast project. The music you heard in this episode comes from Pedro Infante, Calexico, Los Panchos, Jorge Negrete, Pedro Bronfman, Conjunto Jardín, Javier Solis, Gustavo Santalalaya, Antonio Pinto, Al Caiola, Cantinflas, and Los Locos del Ritmo. This podcast is made possible by a grant from Utah Humanities. Thanks to the Scope Radio at the University of Utah for this studio space. I'm Ross Chambliss. This is Nuevas Voces. Oh,